0: Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, Rob Hart steps into the interrogation room to clear up a few things about his writing and his upcoming release entitled The Warehouse. Rob is the author of the short story collection Takeout, and the Ash McKenna series, which wrapped up with Potter's Field in July 2018. He's also the co-author of Scott Free with James Patterson. The warehouse releases in the U.S. market on August 20th, but it's already published in more than 20 countries, and Ron Howard has optioned it for film. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Rob. Thanks for being here and sharing your expertise and thoughts with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Now I, I'm reading the warehouse now, and this is a really timely and, and cautionary tale to me for readers who are new to you in the book. What do you want them to know about this effort? Sure. Uh, so the
1: warehouse imagines that a, uh, a an entirely fictional company that I completely made up in my head, not based on any other real life company, um, <laughs> completely takes over the uh, the American retail economy because they crack like yes. online ordering and drone delivery, and so they become like the the King Kong of of you know, delivering stuff to people. And then they start building uh, dormitory housing for their employees. So it's basically like you never go home anymore. And it follows a couple of characters as well as the CEO uh, of this company as they're sort of digging into both the history of it and some of the secrets that it's holding on to.
0: Now, my. Early reading this book so far, it feels kind of like a Venn diagram of works like 1984 and The Firm. What what kind of research did you put in to to make this um, kind of an alternate dystopian reality?
1: It was a lot of, God, you know, it it was funny. I I learned on this one that there is such a thing as as too much research because at one point I I, I got a book on warehouse management because I was like, well, this would be useful. It was like a $60 textbook. And I got like 10 pages in and I'm like, wow, this is a waste of my time. I'm just going to make everything up. But, um, you know, uh, when it comes to following the long arc of a major corporation going from, you know, kind of this tiny little thing to this big world stomping behemoth, uh, most of my research went into Walmart. I think I read like four or five books on Walmart, including Sam Walton's autobiography, because, you know... uh, Obviously, Amazon is is sort of the model here, but Amazon hasn't been around that long. So there's not as much of Mm -hmm. a base of knowledge, whereas Walmart has been around since the 60s. And you can see a much more clear line in how they grew and how they expanded and then how they sort of, you know, started stretching their tentacles into government, politics and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it was a lot of that and really just a lot of reading the news you know, uh, I'm kind of a news junkie. And I, whenever I start a new project, I create a Google doc for it. And that doc becomes like a repository for links. So Mm -hmm. every time I see a news story that I think is kind of relevant, I drop it in. And I think I had 70 pages of just links, you know, and it might be like this little thing that I was like, Oh, this is a cool, cool point that I should hold on to. Or it was like a bigger sort of in-depth analysis that I felt useful to like the overall narrative so um you know it it was part active in in seeking out resource material and it was part passive and just sort of like i would read the news and see stuff and be like yeah that works
0: so from all of that it seems like there's enough authenticity in this that if things continue to go the way they are or just go really wrong this could end up being a narrative nonfiction in a few years (laughs) Uh,
1: I mean, I certainly hope not. God. Um, Yeah. But, but me and my agent were playing this game. Uh, So every time we, uh, after the book went out, and and even after the book got bought, uh, every time he would see a news story about something I made up that was now coming true, he would send it to me. And (laughs) like, I, 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 in the cloud facility, this giant company where people live, you know, the company itself maintains a, a bank. And so you have like a cloud account. And then there yeah. was a story about Amazon creating checking accounts for its employees. Um, <laughs> there was one, uh, Amazon created a game, like a game for their their warehouse workers. And the game sort of challenged them to work harder, which is actually an idea that I had. And I didn't put it in the book because I thought it was too ridiculous. So- That's uh, amazing. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's amazingly terrifying.
0: Yes. Now, so the characters in this, Paxton and Zinnia, to me, have a whole lot of echoes of of Winston and, and Julia, just with you know their 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 roles reversed by by gender. Is, is that at all intentional? Was there any you know deliberate nineteen eighty four influence in this?
1: I mean, certainly uh, nineteen eighty four was an influence. Uh, Fahrenheit four fifty one, which is one of the first books I ever read, that was like, oh wow, books can do this. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, uh, Handmaid's Tale. Uh, you know, I, I can point to a lot of influences and sort of like the speculative like sci-fi realm and uh mm-hmm. but I, I also like you know and and it sounds a little like magical thinking but these are just like kind of the voices that i heard when i was putting together the narrative like i liked the idea of having this guy who was kind of a company man and sort of you know kind of fell in lockstep a little bit but then this woman who you know she was stuck to but she kind of saw through the bullshit a little bit
0: yeah you know, and I I think historically that's uh, most women characters and and in real life, most real women figures end up almost getting overlooked by a lot of history. And uh, especially in revolutionary efforts, whether it's, you know, the American Civil War or the the resistance efforts in Europe in World War II, women played incredibly important roles in that, that they tended to put up with less bullshit than the dudes. And I think they really get underrepresented in that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, I kind of, I, I, th- there's something appealing to me that, and it's kind of like a funny thing to me, but to like make the, the female character, the alpha and and the male character, yes. the beta, which is, <laughs> I, I did that in, in one of the Ash books I wrote, um, uh, the woman from Prague, there's, you know, ashes is, is in Prague and he gets stuck up in sort of like this, you know, weird spy international dispute. And, and he thinks he's a pretty tough guy. And then he runs across this woman who is like 10 times tougher than him. And all of a sudden he realizes like, wow, I, I do not have the skill set that I thought I did. And it's, it's just fun to play with those expectations sometimes.
0: Yes, It almost sounds like every, uh, every marriage ever. <laughs> also that. Yeah. Yeah. My wife is yeah. way smarter yeah. than me. Yeah. You happen to get an absolutely incredible editor on this project. How did that relationship come about and, 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 and how did that start?
1: Sure. Uh so the book was bought by Julian Pevia, who did uh like The Martian and Ready Player One and and uh, like Dark Matter and Recursion with Blake Crouch. And you know, the book went out on a Friday and by Monday my agent was like, So this guy's interested and this woman's interested and this person's interested." like like it really moved very quickly. Wow and that's incredible. Yeah, it was you know, man, it was it was just bizarre. And um and so uh, Julian got interested and, and he doesn't buy a lot of books. He buys like a book a year. He's a really mm-hmm. picky editor. And he, when I heard he was interested, I was very excited because I think he's also a really talented editor. So he gave me a call and he wanted to to sort of like just feel me out. It, it almost felt like job interviewish, but like a little bit more relaxed.
0: <laughs> sure. But, yeah. uh,
1: you know, we shot the yeah. shit for a little while and we were really simpatico, you know, like he really mm-hmm. got the book. He got where I was coming from. He talked a little bit about, you know, where he saw room for some improvement, which all stuff that I agreed with, and mm-hmm. so we hung up the phone and it was a lovely conversation and I think twenty five minutes later we had a preempt offer Wow, so it was uh, uh it, it was nuts
0: that is especially you know from the everyone's general you know, and even my personal experience with you know just general query submission right is you know you you put everything out and then you wait indefinitely. Oh yeah. And to have that kind of response that quickly um especially on something a, a project as major as this is absolutely phenomenal that had to be so encouraging.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was funny cuz when I when I originally finished the book, I was actually I was in Singapore. Uh my wife was getting a masters and she was doing a study abroad thing and I went with her because they had a really reasonable partner rate where I can like, you know, be on the plane with her and stay in the hotel with her yeah. and and then go kind of wander around while she was doing class stuff. And so I had I had 19 hours of flying time uh, because I can't really sleep on airplanes. And then, you know, a couple of days in a row of just wandering around Singapore. So I brought my laptop and I finished the last edit of the book and I sent it to my agent and I apologized. I'm like, this is terrible. I can't see. I can't see past it anymore. I need someone to weigh in and and just tell me if I'm onto something. And he was Mm -hmm. like, no, no, I think I, I think this is good. And I'm like, I do not believe you but okay. And, uh, and yeah, like the, every step of the way, and I keep on saying this and it's absolutely true. Every step of the way, if someone were, were, would tell me that this is all an elaborate prank, I would be like, you know what? I'm upset, but I'm not surprised.
0: Now I I would generally describe myself as a a Smithian free market economist, kind of shift, shift gears in the conversation a little bit, I guess. But uh, in the modern area of Breakneck technology advances and multi billion dollar global corporations that wield, at the end of the day, I think untenable power through massive economies of scale. I really fear that the, the market's only con- going to continue to narrow through uh, mergers until we end up with, you know, a few corporate oligarchies that dictate our purchase decisions and prevent competition. I also kind of fear that absent additional government regulation or intervention that uh, like what broke up the, the bell monopolies in the eighties. I don't know what other options exist to continue to encourage competition for customers, for workers, and, and then also ensure uh, fair and equitable wages in the marketplace for employees. It's,
1: it's really scary. Uh, I, I think, you know, we're getting to this place now where you're exactly right. You know, th- there's this consolidation that, that I think is just terrifying. I mean, e- even something as simple as the Disney Fox merger, which, mm-hmm. if you think about it, yeah. Disney now owns like seven, like, uh, I mean, this is a guess, but like a humongous chunk, what, 75% of, of fictional stories that are being told? Like, yes. that's crazy. Just one company. It and it's like, everyone's like, oh, well, but but Marvel Studios is going to get the X-Men. This is great. And it's like, well, yes, that's okay. But, you know, this is also something that we should be really nervous about. And yeah, yeah, and it's as those companies consolidate power. And as they're looking to, to cut corners to save money, you know, everyone always gets to the point where they're like, well, we could always save money in the workforce. Um, who really yes. needs healthcare?" you know?
0: Yeah. Well, in the, the Marvel X-Men example, I think feels like a fantastic, uh, fantastic aspect of, you know, hey, look over at this shiny, wonderful benefit and ignore what's going on behind the curtain yeah and yeah it's everything behind the curtain that's going to get us at the end of the day yeah i mean part of the problem here
1: uh is that yeah it's 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 we've kind of bought into that system you know it's Mm -hmm. you know uh, you 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 sound like a reasonably smart dude you know like (laughs) right (laughs) flattery will get you invited back i know (laughs) uh you you know we know even if you don't know the specifics you know that mm-hmm. that your smartphone presumably you have a smartphone was built in mm-hmm. a com- in a country in asia under conditions yes. that would either be completely inappropriate or outright illegal in the us uh, but yes. but we buy them anyway because we don't mm-hmm. have to see that villager in shenzhen who is getting paid you know pennies to work 12 hour shifts around noxious chemicals without proper protection mm-hmm. and there's yes. sort of like this this economic empathy gap and and I'm not I'm not lecturing I'm because I'm not blameless you know I have an iPhone oh and, it's just a reality yeah, yeah. And, and that's part of the problem is and you referred to you know what's the answer and and I just don't know that there is one because we've constructed this gigantically complicated system that the only way to buy out of it is to go is to pull a Kaczynski is to go Live in a shed yeah. in the woods, and 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 we saw that didn't work out yeah. very
0: well for him. So, having already aligned myself with with Adam Smith's philosophy, I also pretty naturally follow Simon Sinek. Are you familiar with with him and his his thought at all? I am not. Uh, Simon Sinek, he's a um, a a leadership and uh, kind of corporate ethics uh, thought influencer and he's really I think doing a fantastic job of working to change the corporate paradigm and leadership structures within organizations um, uh, he pointed out in a, in a TED talk that uh, Adam Smith so firmly believed in the obvious mandate for corporate th- ethics that he unfortunately wrote nothing more need to be said about it but obviously a lot more needed to be said yeah the cynics paradigm effectively asks corporate leaders to take equal concern for the people who not only buy their products, but also the employees who stock their shelves, produce their wares and have a a stake in the corporation and the community. And it is encouraging to me, although I think it's, you know, a very slow change, much like, you know, turning around a battleship, I think, but, um, I think we are starting to see some change at the you know smaller levels uh, of a deliberate shift away from the corporate ideologies. Guys like Jack Welsh and his infamous uh, Rankum and Yankum practices.
1: Yeah, I think people are becoming more cognizant, and I think it's because partially because just sort of like the the general public is becoming more cognizant, and and people are starting to realize like, oh, you know, they're going to come for us with the pitchfork soon, so maybe we should start <laughs> thinking about this stuff. Uh, you know, and, and it's as with everything, uh, the, the 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 pendulum of justice is very, very slow. Mm-hmm. And there's always that fear yes. that it's going to start swinging back the other way. So, you know, uh, I think part of the reason things with the warehouse hit as well as they did, you know, first in like a big American sale and then in, in all these foreign sales is because I think people are keyed into this. Like, I really do wonder if five yes. years ago you know, this book wouldn't have been as effective because there wouldn't have been sort of that that basis of knowledge to be like, oh, yes, these are things we should be afraid of.
0: You know, I, I think that's interesting because, you know, just a few years ago, right? Um, Amazon didn't have such a stranglehold. We had not given Amazon such a stranglehold as consumers on the marketplace. And now, uh, especially in rural areas um, where, you know, you can get two-day shipping, you know, from the next major city and you don't have to leave your farm, your ranch, your house, like almost everything's coming through Amazon. And it, it's, I think, really dangerous for us from a number of perspectives, but especially for small business owners and, and small employees. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, though the flip side of that, uh, you know, talking about people who are like, you know, living out in the heartlands, like maybe somewhere Mm -hmm. that they they, they don't have a lot of access to goods. It's it's like this weird Ouroboros, because on one hand, it's like, well, maybe Amazon is the savior. Like maybe like a mom who like a single mom who has two kids and can't get to, you know, can't drive like 50 miles to the local Walmart needs something delivered to her house because she can't physically get out to get Mm -hmm. it. And then it's a lifesaver. But is the reason there's no business around her because, you know, Amazon or Walmart drove it out? You know so it's it's sort of like again it's it's like this snake eating the its own tail thing,
0: <laughs> yes, on that note, my initial reading on the on the warehouse so far, uh Paxton's walk from the bus to the hiring center really for me dripped with despair and sadness. You did such a fantastic job of putting so much emotion into that without expressly telling me what was going on, but you did such a wonderful job of showing it well thank you and. I wonder if some of those scenes and chapters in this book weren't tough to write because of that. You know, here's, here's the funny
1: thing is, is this book had been percolating for so long. Um, I started laying down notes and I looked back on this because I was curious in in 2012. uh, That was when I first had like the German of an idea. idea. And Mm -hmm. then I wrote the first section over the course of, you know, like a year or so. And then the rest of the book in like six months Um, because it was that first section, which got me a new agent. And then he was, and once I had that artificial deadline, um, (laughs) of of someone expecting it, it was, it was easier to get it done. But, but, but this is all to say that like the book, so much of the book was in my head. It wasn't so much the, the real struggle was in figuring out how to get the narrative voices to work together. Uh, the biggest struggle I had, frankly, was originally the narrative was just Paxton and Zinnia. And Mm -hmm. it just felt like there was a huge component missing. It was like, there was something about it that just felt off. And it wasn't until I created Gibson, like the CEO of the company who is, who is announces to the world that he's dying and then proceeds to like litigate his, his, you know, reign over the company. That's when it clicked for me. That was the hardest part. And so when, when I got that, I was like, oh, this all makes sense now because now I've got a counterpoint to balance out the whole thing.
0: And on that note, I also wanted to specifically talk to you about your character development and how you crafted your heroes and villains so that they didn't feel like two-dimensional cartoons, you know, a bunch of He-Man and Skeletors running around.
1: Well, I think I, I, the, the key with villains always, and, and way smarter people than me have said this, is is the villain of the story never thinks they're the villain. You know, like Gibson is someone who he he sees that he he is worth $300 billion and he created this humongous company and he dominated the retail economy and he... Is you know undertaking initiatives that are trying to solve climate change and 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 you know he's providing healthcare for his workers, the quality of the healthcare notwithstanding. Uh, so in mm-hmm. his mind, he's he's God, you know. He's done these great, mm-hmm. incredible things, and it completely justifies any of the eggs that he had to crack on the way to making the omelet. Um, you know, and and for Paxton and Zinnia, you know, all three of them are sort of just kind of extensions of my own personality, you know, Gibson is drawing on that ego. Cause we all have a little ego, like even writers who oh, tend sure. to be a little like introverted and scared of the world, you know, you still have that, <laughs> that, that little shred inside you. That's like, yeah, I'm pretty yeah. good at this. And it's teasing yeah. that out. And it's, it's teasing out Zinnia's sort of like her, her sarcastic nature and, and her, you know, her ability to kind of, you know, call bullshit on things. And it's teasing out, with Paxton, that that feeling of like wanting to be loyal and wanting to do the right thing and wanting to kind of toe the line. So, you know, it, it's it, it all feels a bit like uh, autobiography to me. And, and that really helps. It's like trying to find my own personal connection to all of these people.
0: Yeah, as looking at a lot of the the open source stuff and getting ready for, for this interview. It seems like you definitely have a lot of zinnia in you in that, you know, not, uh, not being afraid to call bullshit on things. And I imagine that was probably the, the easiest of those to write. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Zinnia's
1: voice is probably the closest to mine, um, just in terms of like raw cynicism. But, uh, but, but you know, to be perfectly honest, there, there's a lot of Paxton in me, too, in, in that mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, not wanting to cause too much trouble and not wanting to, you know, you know trying to look at the bright side of things, mm-hmm. even when things get tough.
0: A few years ago, you got to co-author a James Patterson bookshot, and I wonder how how that came about and what the experience was like with partnering with a living literary legend. So I'm a regular at Bouchercon, which is like the yearly big, mm-hmm. you know, crime and
1: mystery writing convention, and uh, I I was friendly with an editor at at the publishing house uh, Hachette, and we were sitting at the bar having a drink, and he's like, Hey, you know, we've got this new program coming out, and we're going to try to do like short, like novella length works, uh, co-authored with Patterson. Is this something you want to throw your hat in the ring for? Uh, And my first novel, New York, had just came out. Uh, It came out from Polis Books. So it was a small press, but it was still, it was getting like Mm -hmm. some nice buzz and people seemed to like it. And so I was like, "Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm down to do anything." And I didn't hear about it for like three months, so I assume they kind of like looked at like the people on offer and decided like who is this guy uh, next. And <laughs> then I just got this email kind of out of the blue, and they were like, "Hey, do you want to talk on the phone?" And we talked on the phone, and they threw out some ideas, and we spitballed, and we we found something we all liked, and you know, it was a it was a a very scary process because you know, it was 30,000 words and you were writing it in 10,000 word chunks. And so I wrote the first 10,000 words and I sent them in and, and Patterson was like, this is not working. And I'm like, "Uh Oh, (laughs) um, but then he explained why. And his notes were incredibly thoughtful and incisive. And it's like, Oh yeah, this is why you are who you are. Um, my, my favorite note. I love this. I, I I hold this close because I'm a big fan of like nuts and bolts, writing craft stuff. Mm um I had two characters sort of like one like launches himself into the other and, and I compared it to getting hit with a cannonball and he's like no one knows what it's like to get hit by a cannonball you have to use analogies <laughs> that people understand and I'm like yes that's really good why did I never yes. ever ever think of that so yeah
0: it's like the most obvious thing that you would never think on your own
1: yeah it's like a really basic thing but it's a good piece of advice so I really held on to that one and um you know, it was a fun process. I, I really liked doing it. Uh, I, I came up with an ending that I was kind of like, I, I, I was being kind of a jerk with because I came up with something really dark that I was like, there's no way they will go for this. They will make me change it. That's fine. But, and then they saw it and they were like, no, this is great. And I'm like, okay guys, whatever. <laughs> so it, it was nice to, it was nice to, to do that project with him and get his input, but also still feel like I wasn't compromising myself as a writer.
0: And then, I assume fairly recently, you got a call that uh, the former Richie Cunningham wanted to put your book up on the big screen.
1: What was that call like? That that also was really, really weird. That was actually so, uh, it was like a series of dominoes. Like we did the preempt sale to Crown and then that was right before the London Book Fair and all the London stuff went crazy and we we sold in all these territories and it was then that we we got the notice from Hollywood, because the the box office is becoming such a global thing that that if you make a ton mm-hmm. of noise in at, at an international book fair, you're in pretty good shape. And um we had like six or seven like really solid, serious offers, uh, a mix of like film and TV for this. But when Ron Howard comes in, it's kind of like, well, I guess this conversation is over. Um, <laughs> you know uh, and, and they've they've been incredible. like they're they're the nicest people, which I guess should not be shocking. Uh, but I like, like I, I told them like when I, I I had a phone, like there, there's this woman there, Katie, who's kind of like my point of contact and she's great. And we had this, one of our initial phone calls, she was like, you know, what kind of level of involvement are you looking for? And I'm like, look, I'll be honest. Like you guys put, you guys optioned it. You paid me my money. You know, I don't know how to make movies. I don't know how to write a screenplay. This is not the time for me to learn. I don't want to get in your way. Uh, I am a naturally curious person, so I am down to be included as much as you are comfortable having me included. But I also know that if you need to tell me to go sit in the corner and fold my hands and behave, I will happily do that. And and she (laughs) was like, you know, I appreciate that sentiment, but we really do want you to feel like you're a part of the process. And I'm like, you know what?
0: That's super cool. That is unbelievably cool. Yeah. I mean, and I would like to think that, you know, the Ron Howard persona that, you know, you see in the public is exactly that kind of kind and considerate creative, but at the same time, uh, it's also a business, right? So, I mean, it's surprising to me that, uh, that that you've had that experience just from a business perspective, but it's, I'm I'm pretty grateful that it's real.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, like it's an option, like it could still not happen. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm my, my stock rating is like pretty high right now. And if that's the only thing that happens, like that's still a pretty big success and I'm pretty happy about. So, um, you know, I I just, you know, fingers crossed, because it's going to be kind of cool to see it happen.
0: I also wanted to get your point of view on point of view. How did you decide what voice your characters were going to present themselves in? Was it a conscious choice? Or did the characters kind of do that for you? You know, it was weird, because so the first five books
1: I wrote were all first person present, uh, because they were it was a series, and it was following one character, and it was kind of intimate. and And that just felt like the right way to write it. And, There was something about this project that just felt like I needed sort of like a a little bit of a higher view. And especially if I was juggling various perspectives, I I thought like maybe I should try third on this one. And it just sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a little nerve wracking really shortly in the beginning. And then it just kind of clicked for me. Um, And then I kind of threw it all out the window because then I also had Gibson doing like a first person narrative for all of his stuff because they're all kind of like presented as blog posts. But, um, you know, part of it was, is I had just not written like that before. And it just felt like, you know, well, I want to try this. And once I tried it, I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is what works.
0: when did you know that you could write and that someone other than your family actually wanted to read what you had to say? God, I, uh, I was in grammar school
1: and we would, our, our, our teacher would give us like a, a weekly composition assignment where she would give us like a subject we had to write about. And then we had to write like an outline and then a draft. And on Friday we had to deliver a, uh, a finished composition. And it was it was like a short story or essay kind of thing, like, like a page and a half or so. And she was always really super encouraging. She was like, you have a lot of talent. You really seem to like writing. Like this is something you should pursue. And uh, I didn't, uh, I wanted to be an artist for most of the, And I actually mm-hmm. went to college as an art major. But, um, I had also spent a little time when I was in high school working for the, the local daily newspaper on Staten Island, like as, as an intern, they had like a high school sort of intern program. And like, I was writing like movie reviews and like goofy stuff, but it was fun. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was funny because I always thought I was going to be an artist, but I always had sort of like this writing stuff going on in the background that people were way more encouraging about. And, uh, then I got to college and I almost failed out of my first semester which I was taking graphic design and it turns out like I'm just not good at, at working on command, uh, in terms yeah. of drawing, but you know, I, I, I had liked my experience at the newspaper and see, I was really clever. I was like, well, I could go for a creative writing degree, but I'll get a journalism degree because I want to get something where I'm going to be able to make some money. Right.
0: Right. The backup plan.
1: Yeah. Cause journalism is like, it's where people go to get rich <laughs> and, uh, but, but I, I, gave the journalism program a shot and just realized that I loved it. And it was mm-hmm. nice because I, I worked as a reporter for like five years and then I worked, uh, and then I moved over to politics for a little while because I just became a bit of a political junkie. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was sort of, it was always sort of there without me realizing it. And then, you know, it took me until college to kind of, kind of get there. Uh, but I, you know, as I was a journalist, I always had like a long-term goal of like one day writing novels.
0: Now, when did you realize that your writing was your art?
1: It was really like, yeah, it was once I got into the journalism in college and all of a sudden I was like, oh, like I feel a level of comfort with this that I didn't feel over in the art conservatory. Like there's something about this that's just sort of clicks for me. Like I don't feel like I'm I'm forcing myself to do it because like. I, I just, I, I would like, like my, my teacher in the art conservatory would like draw a tree. And I'd be like, I don't want to draw a tree. I want to draw a, a building, you know, like there was just yes. sort of like, like, it just wasn't clicking right for me. And and there was something about being there and being in that space and being around people who were really excited about it. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, this makes sense.
0: Yeah. There's really nothing like being surrounded by motivated and uh, optimistic creatives. It is incredibly contagious. Oh yeah, Absolutely.
1: It kind of, it's, it's an opportunity to recharge your batteries a bit, you know? Um, Yes. Like me and my buddies sometimes who also, they're also writers, um, will like rent a cabin in like the Catskills Mm -hmm. or the Poconos or something. And we'll just go for like three or four days and just work. And, and it's such a great thing because we're all, we're we're all working separately. Like we've all got our big chunky headphones on and we're all working on a project, But, you know, if someone's jammed up on something, they can pull their headphones off and be like, hey, can I bounce this off you? And then, you know, Mm -hmm. and then we can bullshit about the industry and what we're working on and all this other stuff, you know, while we're sitting around the fire at night, you know, drinking too much. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of. Those are, those are like almost restorative, you know, because this is something that you do all by yourself. You just sit around and, and you work for, for months and months and sometimes years, just hoping it'll result in something, you know, just just having people to bounce off of sometimes is it's, it's, it's necessary.
0: Yeah. It's so ironic to me that we spend so much time isolated and alone and praying that what we're doing will resonate with anyone else.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's, sometimes there's no way to tell. I mean, I really like, like no. I said, I thought the warehouse just didn't work. I was like, this is not a good book. And, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and thankfully I was wrong, but you know, you also, yes. you can't, you you can't assume because anyone who tells you, right. like anyone who who can say, look you in the eye and seriously say, I just wrote a book that's going to do this kind of business is either James Patterson, Stephen King, or an utter and complete <laughs> lunatic.
0: Yes. Yeah. If, if people knew what it took to write a bestseller, other than those two guys, everyone would be doing it and that's all that would be written. Yeah, exactly. But you know, it's, it's almost non-existent. Yeah. I've heard somewhere and it's a recurring theme on this podcast that it only takes about a decade of consistent blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. that's yeah, I wonder how covers. consistent that is with, with your journey so far.
1: Uh, man, I don't know. I don't know. That's an interesting question. Um, because no one has yet called me an overnight success, um, which is, which is nice. Um, I mean, my first book came out in 2015 and I spent Mm -hmm. five years writing it. And so warehouse is really my seventh book. So I think people have sort of recognized me kind of from around, um, like, like they know that I've kind of like, uh, at least within like the crime fiction community, the people that I hang around, like Mm -hmm. they, they, they've seen like the nose to the grindstone. And so it's not like I just wandered into the scene and I was like, Oh, here's this book. Um, but yeah, I think that that, that that happens sometimes where there's this, it, it takes a ton of time and effort to do this. And again, like it's, it's effort that no one sees, you know, yes. like you, you do it, you do it alone in your office or, you know, in a coffee shop if you're an exhibitionist. And, you know, it's, <laughs> and, and, and that's what makes it so hard is, is the, the, the solitude of it.
0: Who's writing do you most strive to emulate, or or what books would you most like The Warehouse to be compared to?
1: Oh God, um, that question like borderline terrifies me because I don't want to, I, I I don't want to be like anyone. Like I want to be me. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to, I I don't want to ape anyone's style. Which granted, like we all kind of start out from a place of emulation when we're just learning how to do it. Just like when I was an artist and I, I learned by tracing comic books. You know. I, I started <laughs> yes. writing novels and, and I was, I was tracing, you know, Raymond Chandler and, and Chuck Polinick mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Charlie Huston and, and, and all these authors that I really liked. But, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of happy the, wh- a couple of people have compared Warehouse to 1984, which every time I hear that just makes me go a little lightheaded. Cause I'm like, that's just, that's a ridiculous comparison <laughs> to be within <laughs> spitting distance of, uh, of that. But, um, Yeah, no, I just, I'm, I'm honestly like, I'm really excited to see how people react and what people think sort Mm -hmm. of like independent of, of my hopes and dreams, which are basically like, just don't completely bomb and, and leave me destitute.
0: Well, you know, from a reader's perspective, I, I don't think the 1984 comparison is at all unfair because I really think the, the social importance of this book at this time is likely as important as that book dropping back when it did.
1: You know, it was funny. My, um, my agent, uh, he pitched it as 1984, but instead of big business, big brother, it's big business. And I was like, Mm -hmm. you're good. That's a good one. That comparison (laughs) I would take because it it was, I, I think it really cuts really close to the quick.
0: Beyond your writing and your family, what are you most passionate about? What gets you out of bed in the morning and moving with a purpose?
1: Uh lately it's been uh and especially after years and years of like drinking too much and eating too much, I've been trying to focus more on my health. And uh so I, I work with a trainer and I lift a lot and I do fight training and uh you know it's it's nice to be in a place where like I used to have like a really bad lower back issue where like three or four times mm-hmm. a year I would end up like lying on the couch for a week and unable to move and I just not have felt a stitch of pain in years and Oh, that's incredible. You know, I'm, I'm 36 now and, and it, it just, it got to a point where I was like, I was in my early thirties and I'm like, I just, um, I, I shouldn't feel like this. This is not okay. Yeah. Like, like it was finally catching up with me. And, um, so, you know, it, it also helps in keeping up with my daughter because she's four, which is like, <laughs> which is like living with yeah. leather face. It's like peril in every direction, <laughs> but, um yeah, no, I just, I, I, I really am getting more and more into fighting to the point where, uh, so I do Krav and a little Muay Thai and, mm-hmm. and I'm like yeah. flirting with BJJ now. And I, I have this fantasy of in like three or four years going to like a Muay Thai camp in Thailand, like in Chiang Mai for like a week. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. my wife kind of like smiles and politely nods every time <laughs> I say that. But, uh, it would just be a lot of fun like there are these camps where you get to go and you just train Mm -hmm. and you stay there and like you train twice a day and like you have meals with everyone it just sounds like so much fun and uh like also really hard and painful but that's part of the
0: point well it would almost be analogous to your writing camp in the cat skills just with fight training yeah, well, that, an, an immersion program for badasses. You, you, you know, what's funny is that
1: uh, a couple of the guys I write with also fight train. So usually, like, like mm-hmm. usually when we go, we'll wake up in the morning and we'll throw on some gloves and take out some focus mitts and we'll just like punch each other for a little while. And, uh, and, and it's a good way to just kind of like get the blood flowing and then you spend mm-hmm. the rest of the day sitting. So it's nice to have that feeling of like physical exertion to start the day with.
0: Yeah, I uh, was the Krav instructor for for the agency I, oh, wow. I used to work for. And it was uh, yeah, a tremendous, tremendous fight system. And yeah. I, my background before that was primarily Muay Thai. And, okay. You know, those, those two things together are from a functional street fight perspective, I think uh, accepting BJJ, the most functional things that you can do and, and putting that, that ground fighting component <laughs> into it also. I mean, Krav has some fight, some ground component to it, yeah. but it's mostly a, you know, get a, get it resolved, get away. It's not a, let's stay here and manipulate this guy and, you know, constrict him. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal fight training. And I think from a writer's perspective, having that experience, when you do write action, crime, those types of sequences gives you tremendous advantage to write with that authenticity. Oh, it does. It does. Like,
1: that's something that I'm, I'm always, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm like constantly thinking about now where it's like you watch like a fight scene in a movie and like, if it goes longer mm-hmm. than three minutes, you're like, those guys would be gassed right now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or you think yeah. about how, like, how important, like I will not, I won't even hit a pad unless my hand is at least wrapped because your hand is just full mm-hmm. of all these little tiny bones that just like to yep. break, you know? And it's uh, you, I, I think it, it, it gives you such an incredible perspective on, just the way bodies work and move, you know, Mm I, I'm toying with this idea. So I, I have a friend, uh, so we were at Comic-Con this past weekend, my friend Delilah, uh, who's also a writer, Delilah Dawson, uh, who is a fantastic writer and everyone should check out. Um, she's just getting back into Muay Thai after years. So I was like, cool, brought my mitts, brought hand wraps, and we spent a morning in the gym just like throwing some combinations. And we talked a lot about that, about how, you know, doing the fight training can really reflect on your writing. And so now, for New York Comic Con, I'm toying with the idea of, of talking to my instructors and be like, maybe we can do like a little writer's seminar, like get a couple yeah. of people down to the, get down to the studio mm-hmm. in Tribeca and just like run them through some stuff. Cause it's just like, I mean, half of them are like going to die halfway through the, the cardio, yes, which will also be fun <laughs> to watch. But, um, yes, yeah, I think that it would just be kind of like a fun sort of like, Hey, like, you know, here's a fun little instructional thing that you might
0: not have done otherwise. Well, and even for someone to uh, to write about from a victim's perspective or from the 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 the, the aggressor's perspective, having never hit anything or been hit, um, I think you know really you can tell the difference in in a lot of people's writing whether they're uh, speaking from a place of authenticity.
1: Yeah, yeah. God, I remember this time. It was like last year I was working with this guy and and we were doing some light sparring and this guy is like a pretty serious boxer and and I asked him to open up a little bit because I felt like really weak on my sparring and I'm like you know don't the only way to learn is to get hit and it was it was just mayhem like like I would just turn my head straight into his fist every time every time I tried to move like there he was to like knock me down and it's like you don't really like the desperation and, and the and the confusion and just sort of like the fear that sinks in because you're just so overwhelmed. It's incredible.
0: The uh, next thing that I, I wanted to move on to is what do you want readers to take away from your writing and The Warehouse in particular? You know,
1: we, we kind of referred to it before in the sense that I don't think there are any clear answers in this book on how to fix things. Uh, but I would really like it. And and that seems to be reflected in the Goodreads reviews so far, which I know you're not supposed to read, but I read anyway. Um, Sure. And and just for people to be a little bit more thoughtful of the human cost of, you know, that, that two day delivery or that iPhone or, or whatever, you know um, the, the thing that they're getting that someone else had to be inconvenienced to get. um, I feel like that would be a decent starting point.
0: Most writers that I know are also the most ferocious readers do you have a, a favorite fictional detective investigator or uh, even a you know a assassin or revenge artist that you read right now um i mean my the, the
1: my my favorite go-to uh which i haven't read him in a while and i've been thinking about revisiting these is the joe pitt books by charlie huston um which are it's a it's a vampire private investigator and and i love the character wow. so much because he's just such a bastard You know, and and the book really sort of gets this great kind of like it it really mixes like the horror and the hard boiled like very, very well it feels like really respectful to and ensconced in both genres without being derivative. So those books are just really, really incredible. a book that that I, I loved this year that that I've been telling everyone to read is American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson, uh, which follows a, a black woman in the CIA who gets enlisted as a spy. I think in like the the, the late seventies or the early eighties, and it's just wow, this stunning book because it's it it really gets into a lot of those issues of you know what you would expect a black woman to deal with in the CIA in the in the late seventies or mm-hmm. early eighties. Uh, But it's also this really, really beautifully, you know, human story about family. And it's just, you know, I I was like getting like a little choked up at the end. And I was I was on a train from Glasgow to London. And like the conductor actually came over and is like, are you okay?" And I'm like, no, this is a good book. I'm not okay." (laughs) But uh, yeah, American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson, I think is is, I I read it in like February. And I know it's going to be my favorite Mm -hmm. book that came out this year.
0: I asked this last question of all the authors who, who come on the show, uh, keeping that last answer in mind, Rob, if you were to wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered, <laughs> what fictional investigator, assassin, revenge artist, or cop would you want work in your case?
1: I I, I love the paradox of the question, <laughs> where it's like you wake <laughs> up and find you are murdered. Like, oh, what an inconvenience this is. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, man. My day has gone to shit. Yeah this is not going to get better um yeah you know the the I, i'm going to go with the first one that popped into my head which is nero wolf and archie goodwin because nero would figure it out because he always does
0: fantastic well i, I greatly appreciate you were coming on the show and, and sharing your expertise and, and your time with us rob it's been tremendous talking to you and i'm really excited to see how all the success starts you know relaunching for this book next month thank you so much this was a lot of fun now, where can readers connect with you and your works, maybe get updates on new releases? Sure. Uh, I am on the web at
1: robwhart.com. Uh, on Twitter, it's at Rob w. And on Facebook and Instagram, it's robwhart1, because I either created accounts and forgot the passwords or someone else got to it before <laughs> me.
0: You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed author Rob Hart. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.